In 1831, 16-year-old Robert Thompson from Kilkenny began his medical studies at Dr. Stevens Hospital in Dublin. During this year, he resided at the hospital, quote, where a number of wild fellows messed in our room, generally spent our evenings sparring and drinking punch and going to the upper gallery at the theatre. He then went on to train at the Royal College of Surgeons, remarking that in 1834, he spent a jolly winter, drank a great deal of punch, went to the theatre at least two times a week. Thompson's recreational activities were not, however, confined to drinking punch and the theatre. On his 20th birthday, on the 12th of October, 1836, he noted the following in his diary. I am 20 today, dined at O'Hara's in the evening, at Bulls got into a fight, Brown and I well beat by six or seven fellows. Jay Healy lodged a pound for me and him. In the morning went to College Street, no prosecution. As historians of medicine have shown, the medical student of the early 19th century possessed a dire reputation. Incidents of criminal, drink field, and rambunctious activity among Irish medical students were widely reported in the first half of the 19th century. In particular, Irish students had a reputation for being less gentlemanly and less educated than their counterparts from other countries. William Stokes, the Irish physician speaking in 1855, commented that an acquaintance of his who was head of one of the departments of the public service had remarked, we get from Ireland some of our very best and very worst men. Stokes asked him what the latter were lacking in, to which he replied, in conduct and in common letters. Keir Waddington's work has explored how and why the image of the rowdy medical student came to be perpetuated in early 19th century London. He has suggested that such stereotypes emerged as a consequence of fears about the city and rising crime rates, with their reported behaviour embodying the corrupting influence of the city. At the same time, these stereotypes also reflected the low and uncertain status of medicine. The flexible system of training whereby students selected which lectures and schools to sign up for left a considerable amount of time for the sights and delights of London. Lecturers at St Bartholomew's Hospital in the late 19th century were willing to accept certain types of behaviour because they were familiar with student culture and recognised that such behaviour was an important release from the demands of study. So in this paper, I wish to examine uh, medical student behaviour in the Irish context. And in particular, I argue that class and the economic aspects of the Irish contact text are also important factors to bear in mind. Irish medical schools competing for students were more likely to turn a blind eye to incidents of rambunctious behaviour. And also the social backgrounds of medical students are important here too. Um, finally, I wish to dissect these incidents of boisterous behaviour from the student's perspective, emphasising that it was the gruelling nature of medical study, poor living conditions and lack of supervision and collegiate accommodation, which also resulted in students' engagement in these activities. Um, and then towards the end of the paper, I'm also going to touch on students' involvement in medical student societies and in sport, and how these activities help to solidify their sense of professional identity. So um, as Catherine's mentioned, um, the paper is part of a wider study on the history of medical student experience um, in Ireland, um, and it's very much a work in progress, so I'd be very grateful for any feedback or comments. So in the first half of the 19th century, medical education in Ireland, as in the rest of Britain, was highly unregulated. 
Students could train at one of the private medical schools in Dublin or Cork, or at one of the many Dublin hospitals, or Trinity College Dublin, or the Royal College of Surgeons. Students also had the option of apprenticeship training, which began to die out towards the middle of the 19th century. Moreover, students could usually pick and choose the lectures they attended. By the end of the 19th century, the system of medical education had been reformed considerably, and students tended to train at one of the medical schools recognised by the General Medical Council. Um, so by the end of the 19th century, students would have largely trained at um, Trinity College, the Royal College of Surgeons, or at one of the Queen's Colleges in Galway, Belfast and Cork, um, which opened in 1849, or at the Catholic University School of Medicine, which opened in 1855. Okay, so I'm going to start by talking a bit about medical student misbehaviour and just give some examples of the types of um, incidents um, which occurred. Um, so throughout the 19th century, accounts of bad behaviour and criminal activities conducted by medical students were common in the Irish press. These ranged from pranks to brawls between students to accounts of inappropriate conduct with regard to dissection, visits to brothels and more serious incidents such as assaults. So with regard to pranks, um, for example, in 1853, the Freeman's Journal reported on the discovery of a human skeleton by a man lowering the ground floor of a back kitchen in a house at Gloucester Place in Dublin. The incident was reported to the police and an investigation was conducted by the detectives and the city coroner, Dr. Kerwin, with the police looking into former inhabitants of the house. Kerwin examined the bones and having investigated the matter as far as possible and considered all of the information that could be obtained, he and the detectives present were led to suppose that the bones had been deposited in the kitchen by some medical or anatomical student some 12 or 15 years previously, judging by their appearance. Curran believed that an inquest was unnecessary and condemned the prank, which he believed, quote, was calculated to excite groundless suspicions and in years afterwards to cause considerable annoyance to the inhabitants of the house and neighbourhood. Drunken pranks were not uncommon either. In 1884, Mr. Sidney Herbert was accused in court of stealing three billiard balls, the property of the Cap Brothers tobacco shop on Grafton Street. A witness in the case stated that the defendant had recently passed his half-examination and went about enjoying himself afterwards. Herbert's testimony indicates the potential for such activities to negatively affect his future career. He requested that he would not be sent to prison because if he was, quote, his whole career would be blasted and he could never go on with his profession, end quote. He was fined five pounds. Pranks directed at fellow students were not uncommon either. Oliver St. John Gogarty and his friends once sold a paralytically drunk medical student to the Royal College of Surgeons as a corpse. Um, the student had been placed in a sack, and since there was no outward indications of a pulse, the caretaker paid out the stipend and placed the body among the other cadavers, some of whom had already been the subject of student research. The other boys waited outside for some hours till the unfortunate student, now fully sober, came running into the street in a fit of anger, shouting, it's the last time I'll die to pay for your drink. 
Likewise, in 1895, medical student William McCarthy wrote to the president of Queen's College Cork to complain about his fellow student, D. Cagney. McCarthy reported basically that he had um, sold Cagney three books and Cagney promised he would pay him the next day. Um, However, Cagney did not pay him the money and allegedly had been bragging to his friends about the deed and had said that McCarthy was very foolish in trusting his word and that he had never had any intention of paying him the money. McCarthy added that he did not mind the loss of the money, but regretted, quote, being gulled so outrageously and the swindler glorying in his infamy. Additionally, he reported that the tone of a section of the colleges is so low that actions of the sort I have named above are not considered at all dishonourable, but rather the other way. Accounts of brawls and assaults were not uncommon either. James Montgomery, who studied, in, uh, who studied medicine in Dublin in the 1820s, wrote to his friend in 1824 describing a feud between the college lads and the 10th Hussars, who were a cavalry regiment of the British Army. According to Montgomery, the students had, quote, trounced them well four or five times. Two of these officers insulted a lady in the theatre and drew his sword on the gentleman with her. This now became general, and three of these heroes were carried to the watch house, disgust and disgraced. Similarly, in 1840, Michael Head Burgoyne, a medical student, was brought into custody, charged with being about to conduct a duel with a Mr. Brett Brady, a dispute which had arisen after a night's drinking and card playing in a public house in Britain Street when the pair had got into a disagreement after one had told the other that he had been cheating. Um, A brawl ensued and the pair arranged a duel for the next morning at half past six. Um, And then they were released on bail after a surgeon and a counsellor provided the kind of the money uh, to let them to let them go. Um, Similarly, in 1831, uh, Mr. Percy, who's a medical student, lodged a complaint against two fellow medical students um, who he claimed had poured vitriol oil, which is kind of like sulfuric acid, on his clothes, thereby thereby destroying them following a night drinking punch at a public house and attending a brothel known as the Holy Land in Dublin. And one interesting case I came across um, in 1839 um, was a, a report about a large group of about 100 medical students um, who were basically brought into the Dublin um, head police office um, and with, along with one of their lecturers who was sort of representing them. Um, and although the Freeman's Journal article remarked that they were unable to say what gave rise to the, this, sorry, to the dispute, They remarked that it was currently rumoured that these gentlemen of the knife were very nearly exhibiting some of their demonstrations and in no very skilful manner on some living subjects. So all of these kind of accounts in the press, you know, really um, damaged the kind of reputation of medical students in the period. Accounts of riotous behaviour are not uncommon either. Thomas Gary, who began his studies at Queen's College Galway in the 1880s, recalled an incident in his French class in his first year of study when the professor asked a student to read a passage from a French book aloud. When the student had finished, the professor made an insulting remark about the hopelessness of teaching French to the Irish. All of the students rose and began singing the Marseillaise and then walked out of the lecture theatre. According to Gary, later that evening, the students attacked the professor's private residence. They broke all the windows and did considerable damage. Um, According to Gary, he said that they actually would have done more, but for the fact that the police turned up and interfered. 
Um, and he remarked that the professor took his revenge later by ploughing them unmercifully in the examinations. Um, similarly, in 1883, there's another account about a riot um, of Trinity medical students um, started by a man called William McKenzie. And William McKenzie was arrested because he actually had started um, beating up um, a labouring man. Um, and in the court case, the judge, Mr. Woodlock, remarked that it would be far better for the accused to be minding his medical business or reading for his examination than disturbing the peace of the city and fined him 40 shillings. Um, similarly, in 1899, um, following a visitation at Queen's College Cork, this is where um, basically a committee would come to visit um, the Queen's College um, after you know, complaints had been made by students. Um, so after this visitation had occurred, um, 120 medical students made a demonstration in the college grounds after it appeared that their requests were not going to be um, agreed with. Um, the students first destroyed most of the furniture in the examination hall before taking possession of the fire appliances and going to the president's house where they turned on the hose in the window in the dining room, um, apparently giving people who were actually in the house a shower with the, the water. Um, after this, then, they wandered around the grounds of the college, breaking glass and demolishing gas lamps um, before walking towards the Western Road, um, going into the theatre where they kind of caused a big ruckus there as well. Um, and then later they were kind of stopped by the police after um, some of the students got into disputes with other students. Um, some were singing national songs and others were singing kind of loyalist songs, so um, that kind of caused more problems. Um, likewise, in 1900, on the occasion of Queen Victoria's visit to Dublin, riots took place in Dublin with undergraduates from Trinity College frequently coming to blows with the mob who were rioting. Jay Johnston Abraham, a medical student at Trinity at the time, recalled one student called John Askins, who remarked to him the next morning with a heartfelt tone of regret. Och, it was a grand time we had last night. I was fighting for an hour and I was dressing cut heads at Mercer's Hospital for the next two, and the old dear will never know I was doing it for her. Um, and despite being what um, Abraham called an amusing daredevil, um, but like many others, not very studious, um, he remarked that Oskins went on to make an excellent doctor after qualification. Um, also, I've come across a lot of kind of accounts which show that these students weren't very respectful towards figures of authority. For example, in 1854, a medical student called Henry Hatfield, the son of Her Surgeon Hatfield of Charlemont Street, was charged with using insulting language towards a Catholic clergyman, Reverend McHugh, who claimed that Hatfield came up to him and said, the mark of the beast, 666, to hell with the Pope, and wait till we get the nunneries bill. An incident which the judge condemned as a most unprovoked assault on a gentleman who is evidently a clergyman and probably a clergyman belonging to a church different from that of which you yourself are a member. So there are these kind of um, you know, religious kind of sectarian aspects as well, um, which I'm hoping to kind of explore in more depth. Um, likewise, in 1873, five Dublin medical students um, appeared in court charged with having forced their way into the residence of Mr. James Kennedy's surgeon and assaulting Kennedy and two other people who lived in, at the same address. Um, and again, the students are just merely being given fines um, for these offences. And I mean, they're often quite serious offences, but yeah, they're just being given fines. Um, so... Um, 
Not all students, I should um, point out, engaged in these kind of antisocial behaviour or drinking, and often finances prevent them from doing so. James Little, a student in Dublin in 1853, writing retrospectively, stated that, quote, he didn't mix with other medical students but studied alone. This may have kept me from dissipation, but I would not advise such a course. And he also wrote that he deeply regretted that he had not indulged in the enjoyments, the pleasures, recreations, sports of young men, which he owed to the lack of money sent to him by his father. Similarly, James Montgomery, who studied in Dublin in the 1820s, um, who had previously accumulated gambling debts, saw his studies as a means of redemption, remarking in a letter to a friend in 1824 that he viewed medicine as both a literary and as well as a scientific calling, and I am sure that it is much better for me to be at some kind of employment than to spend my time as I did formerly. You will laugh at, me at this, but perhaps, and cry Montic turned more moralist, but you'll give me some little credit for perseverance when I tell you that since my arrival in Dublin at November, I have not missed a single lecture. Um, and while he was a student in Dublin, Montgomery um, messed or lived with another student called Templeton, and he remarked that we live very fairly to be sure we do not drink claret, as in times of yore. Um, contemporary commentators such as Edward Dillon Mapother, who was Professor of Anatomy and Physiology at the Royal College of Surgeons in 1868, claimed that the behaviour of medical students was no more frivolous or dissipated than any other class of youths exposed to the great temptations of the city. Remarking on his belief that many police office roues dubbed themselves medical students when they were in fact not medical students at all. Um, and Keir Waddington has kind of say, stated that you know there was this kind of wider student culture of misbehaviour, but medical students in particular had a very bad reputation within this. Um, so it's difficult to actually figure out whether you know to determine how many of the crimes reported were actually committed by medical students or whether they were by offenders pretending to be students. Um, however, I think it just kind of highlights the fact that they they did have a really bad reputation in the 19th century. Um, so just to kind of move on to the next part of my uh, paper, so I want to just talk about some of the explanations for this misbehaviour. So some of them are explanations given by contemporary commentators, and then um, I want to kind of focus on my own ideas about why students were behaving in this way. Um, so first off, it was felt that the demise of the apprenticeship system of training, whereby a student was apprenticed to a master for his years of medical education, had negative consequences. The system of apprenticeship training began to break down in the 1840s with the rise of the hospital as a centre for medical teaching. In 1843, the Dublin Medical Press lamented that since the petering out of the apprenticeship system, inexperienced boys are now merely put on top of a coach and sent to grope their way to professional eminence through the dangerous paths put before them in a large city and exposed to temptation and imposition, left to follow their own vagaries as to the course of education to be pursued without counsel or constraint. And similarly, William Stokes, speaking to students um, at Trinity in 1864, remarked, a young man, often little more than a boy, is sent from his parents' roof and plunged into a medical school in a large city. As to discipline, there is none for him. As, for example, he has that of his fellows. There are none to care for him. He may degrade himself to the last extreme. 
Particularly, members of the Irish medical profession bemoaned the lack of collegiate residences, which they believed meant that Irish medical schools lacked the discipline of their British counterparts. The Dublin medical press doubted whether collegiate residences could ever be established in Dublin because of the fact that the medical schools were broken up into so many insignificant sections, all jealous of collegiate control. Similarly, William Henry Porter blamed the lack of enforcement of a strict discipline at Irish institutions and also believed that because medical students spend so much time together that it was inevitable that mischief would occur. Um, Thomas Gary believed that if there had been hostels attached to the ho hospitals in late 19th century Dublin, many dismal tragedies would have been diverted. Um, but there is also a sense that lecturers appreciated that this was kind of a part of student culture and uh, in a lot of cases they had been there themselves and they'd done, done these kind of uh, types of activities. Um, so Rodin McNamara, for example, who's a former president of the Royal College of Surgeons, speaking in 1881, took a sympathetic perspective, arguing that some of these young gentlemen may be a little wild, some of them may commit acts of which the more sober-minded may not approve, is but to state that young shoulders do not carry old heads, and for my own part, I am happy to think they do not do so. McNamara had not been immune to such acts of wildness himself. On October 15, 1842, at the age of 20, he was taken into custody by the Dublin police after they were made aware of a duel that was to take place the following day at six in the morning between McNamara and another medical student called Robert Hussey. According to the newspaper report about the incident, the dispute had started after one party had said to the other, you are no gentleman at the Royal College of Surgeons. And again, the pair were discharged after they kind of came up with the, the money to, to pay the fine. Okay, and um, there was also a sense that those entering into medical education were coming from a lower class than had previously entered the profession, and some lecturers kind of used this as a kind of a way to uh, excuse the behaviour, I guess. Um, in 1841, the Dublin Medical Press suggested that because of the cheapness of medical education, parents who realised, quote, that their sons could be made doctors at less cost than they could be made shoemakers or saddlers, end quote, were sending them for training in medicine because they viewed it as a means of raising them in the scale of society. Although the journal acknowledged that, that they did not wish to make poverty a barrier to social advancement, the author of the article suggested that because the life of the medical practitioner was so beset with temptations, it was essential that he should be prepared for this with the foundation of a liberal education and habits. Similarly, in 1842, the journal remarked that because of the fact that the cost of entering into the profession was at that point so inconsiderable, it meant that persons of the most limited means are tempted to look at it as a provision for their children. And certainly there is this, this sense that medical education was very much unregulated um, and that the kind of system was very lax. Um, and this is kind of something I kind of want to do more research on. Um, so I just have a table here um, of social backgrounds of a sample of medical students at Trinity College that I did a few years ago. Um, so this is, again, I'm going to look into more depth at the other universities as well. But you can see that um, for this period, 1859 to 1900, um, almost 60% have backgrounds um, where their fathers you know, were doctors, clergymen, uh, working in law, or gentlemen. So they're still coming from these um, quite well-to-do backgrounds. But again, this is something I hope to look at more closely in future. Um, 
Another important aspect in the, con the Irish context is uh, the kind of competition um, for students and how this kind of might have affected the lack of discipline. Um, so Thomas Laffin, who was at one point an anatomist at the Catholic University, um, commented in 1887 that one of the greatest difficulties to be faced in connection with medical students was the process of keeping them in order. And he further remarked of the medical profession that, and I'm quoting here, there is no use in blinking the fact that the profession which of all mere worldly callings makes the greatest demand on the self-control and morality of its members enjoys the reputation of numbering among its aspirants the wildest roues who attach themselves to any calling. And he further acknowledged that school managers too often wink at the misconduct of their students under the, the pressure of too keen competition for recruits. And certainly um, there was intense competition between the Irish medical schools, which appear to have been very much plagued by these economic difficulties throughout the 19th century. Um, in 1845, the Dublin Medical Press um, commented that some of the private medical schools in Dublin, for example, in an effort to attract pupils, were keeping the, their dissecting rooms open at night, um, which they said had led to great evils and irregularities. Um, then as late as 1889, The Lancet is reporting um, that 10 to 15% of medical students in Dublin were attending night classes as well. Um, then earlier in the 19th century, there were also concerns about the sham certificate system at Irish medical schools, whereby students would basically buy certificates to say they had attended lectures um, without having attended classes at all. Um, so this is, I think, an important aspect um, of, of you know, why students are misbehaving, because it's just so unregulated and there isn't any guidance or discipline being, being offered. Um, but one other aspect I'm very interested in is, um, because I'm kind of focusing on student experience, is this kind of idea of the difficult aspects of medical education and how students behaved badly as a means of kind of escaping uh, this kind of grueling uh, nature of their studies. Um, so I just have a quote here from Robert Murray, and he was a medical student at Trinity, and he was speaking to his fellow students in 1850 at a medical student society meeting, um, and he talks here about the fact that they're just they had to witness all these very kind of harrowing scenes, um, and that you know that that's part of the kind of process. Um, similarly, an article in defence of medical students, which appeared in the Irish Times in 1875, drew attention to the very difficult aspects of medical student experience. Um, and it stated, anyone who may feel inclined to criticise very severely the conduct of the medical student should bear in mind the very peculiar character of his studies and the singularly arduous nature of his duties. He is for hours daily in a dissecting room where he goes through the most repulsive course of training that it is possible to imagine. He is obliged to do work from which an ordinary man would shrink with the utmost horror. In the mornings at the hospitals, he helps to alleviate every variety of human agony in the midst of loathsome diseases, contagion, and death. Um, and also, I've just got here um, a, an extract from a poem by Richard Dalton Williams, who studied medicine in Dublin in the 1840s. And in his poem, he's reflecting on this painful side of student life. Um, so if you want to read yourselves, but he's um, basically writing about his reaction as a medical student to the death of a young girl in hospital from consumption. Um, 
Also, another aspect is the fact that students had to live in these kind of um, cheerless digs. Uh, they were just not very super well supervised compared to their counterparts in Britain. Um, and there's this sense that as a result, they're not being guided and they're not making the best use of their time. Thomas Laffin, writing in 1887, remarked that even a well-disposed youth, quote, very often gets so dazed by the utter strangeness of the work to him that he loses himself altogether, gets utterly at sea, and so entirely loses heart as to lapse into the confirmed idler. Okay, so in the final section of the paper, I just want to talk um, about how professors at Irish medical schools attempted to improve the behaviour and reputation of their students. And introductory addresses were one way which they, you know, one means uh, they used to try and instill students with the ideals of the profession. And these would have usually been given at the start of the year. Um, and uh, they often kind of refer to good conduct and, you know, sometimes drew attention to the important medical issues of the day. Um, Michael Brown has highlighted the rhetoric of militarism and heroism that was an important part of physicians' writings in the 19th century. In the Irish context, there are several examples of this rhetoric. For example, William Stokes' address on medical ethics in 1869, in which he referred to the doctor's duties to society, arguing, you must be as soldiers in a field of battle. You must do good for God's sake, whether it be to the rich or to the poor, and not measure your needful exertions by the amount of any earthly reward. Medical students were described in one Irish Times article as heroic, with the writer commentating that students would fearlessly penetrate into the darkest and most dangerous slums of the city, the abodes of desperate and men and fallen women. They traverse by places which the police themselves avoid when they can. They coolly and skillfully perform their functions in the cellars and garrets of the outcasts of society. Um, so poor behaviour and conduct during student days was thought to result in lessened opportunities for medical students in their future careers. Um, in 1860, Robert Adams, in an introductory lecture to students at the Mead Hospital, warned students that from the moment they entered into education, their character was before the public and that also their behaviour could really affect um, their likelihood to actually gain hospital appointments. On the other hand, students who proved themselves during their student days could gain the approval of their seniors and attain testimonials which were crucial for attaining posts. For example, William Henry Porter, surgeon to the Mead Hospital, noted in his testimonial for Robert Jones that Jones had been a diligent student at the Mead Hospital and that this and his attention merited the approbation of his teachers as well as his general conduct their respect. Um, also, introductory addresses draw attention to the maintenance of health. Um, Charles Benson, Professor of Medicine at the Royal College of Surgeons, encouraged students to take exercise each day as well as to eat good wholesome meals at regular hours. He also advocated the importance of rising early and suggested that students should be very careful in their choice of companions. Um, he also advised students to write home once a week and that this would kind of help them to ch keep a check on their conduct um, and also warned students against the dangers of snuff taking, which he described as a filthy thing, and also against smoking, which he kind of believed to be very immoral as a habit. 
Um, and then students were also encouraged to kind of engage in more respectable recreational activities. So visits to museums, to, uh, to zoological gardens, um, art exhibitions, um, reading books, um, enjoying music. And they're also advised to conduct themselves with as much masculine gravity as possible, as possible within the hospital. Um, okay, so we have a few minutes left. Um, so also students very much looked up to their professors who they described in these kind of gentlemanly terms. Robert Graves was referred to as a most gentlemanly clever man by William Scoresby, a medical student at Trinity in 1836 in a letter to his father. Similarly, Robert Jones, an English medical student who came to the Meath Hospital for six months in 1836, described Graves in his diary as a very sharp man and full of practical knowledge. His manner is pleasing and communicative to the pupils. He's decidedly the most gentlemanly lecturer I have yet met with among the Dublin teachers. Um, and also in uh, Oliver St. John Gogarty's um, kind of autobiographical novel, um, Tumbling in the Hay, he refers to the physician Thomas Miles as being this very kind of manly figure with a cavalry moustache and a Herculean frame. And he also talks about the fact that he'd been a boxer in his youth. So these are sort of the kind of examples that doctors were trying to, to set. Then from the late 19th century, student discipline began to be more rigorously enforced. For example, at Queen's College Belfast in the 1880s, students could be fined by their professors for any breach of discipline in class, while signature of certificates could be withheld if a student behaved badly. Moreover, the entrance of women students to Irish universities was also thought to have had a civilizing effect in, in improving student behavior. From the late 19th century, sport, in particular rugby, became and also became an important part of the identity of the Irish medical student. And students were very much encouraged to engage in sport for health reasons. For example, E.D. Mapother, um, a professor at the Royal College of Surgeons, remarked on the importance of training the physical as well as the mental faculties, which are closely inter interdependent, in order to combat the threat of contagious diseases to which medical students were often exposed. He suggested that students' spare time should be spent in the ball court, gymnasium, or cricket field, rather than smoking at the dissecting room fires or in the taverns to which want of occupation will tempt them. And then, I mean, um, yeah, I was just going to say that sport was basically a very important part of student life in Irish universities and was regarded as crucial in the development of the medical man as a well-rounded individual. And there's also this idea put forward that sport kind of encouraged discipline and this kind of sense of manliness. Um, finally, just to talk a little bit about medical student societies. So these are also kind of a more rec uh, respectable recreational activity for students. Um, and most of these start to emerge in the late 19th century at all of the different Irish universities. And they help to foster students with a sense of professional identity um, and serve three main purposes, which were educational, um, social, and protest. So students would come and present papers at the society and would also have visiting professors come and speak as well. But they also allowed students a, me a means of airing their grievances rather than turning to riots as they had done previously. Um, and also, from a social point of view, they often were responsible for kind of in, um, organizing dances, um, smoking concerts, and other events. 
Okay, so just to sum up with some conclusions. Um, so evidently the Irish medical student of the 19th century, like his counterparts in Britain, possessed a pretty bad reputation. I've attempted to show here, as in Britain, that the bad behaviour of students was largely tolerated by lecturers who kind of seemed to view it as a rite of passage. Additionally, the unregulated nature of education meant that discipline was not rigorously enforced. In the Irish context, the economic difficulties of the medical schools may have meant that student discipline was not a priority for lecturers who were competing with each other for students. Furthermore, incidents of bad behaviour also at times reflected sectarianism within the Irish medical profession. However, fundamentally, incidents of bad behaviour were basically an outlet for students who struggled with the harsh aspects of medical student life. And in the words of J. Johnson Abraham, an Irish doctor who studied at Trinity in the 1890s, medical students since the time of Dickens and Albert Smith have always had the reputation of being rather wild. It has been suggested sardonically that this is because they know that once they become doctors, they must be even more decorous than Parsons, and so they make the most of it while they can. But of course, the real reason probably is that their behaviour is the result of coming up against pain and suffering and the gruesome side of life at a time when the only way they can react against it is to rush to the other extreme and hilariously ignore it. Um, so there is this sense that they were kind of entitled to act in this way because of the kind of difficult nature of their studies and the, difficult, um, the you know, difficulties they would experience in their future careers. Um, Irish physicians also seem to acknowledge the importance of engaging in the more riotous aspects of student life to the formation of, of doctors' professional identity. There was a sense that medical students who engaged in all aspects of student life would go on to make good and well-rounded doctors. For example, in his memoirs, Thomas Gary affirmed, but in my opinion, it is the wildest and most adventurous students who often turn out to be the best, most humane and generous doctors. I have little taste for the man who boasts that he never entered a pub in his life or took part in the riotous assemblies inseparable from student life at all times in all countries. He is not the sort of man who makes a good doctor with wide human sympathies and becomes the friend and confidant of his fellow men. So moving into the late 19th century, the incidences of such behaviour significantly declined as discipline was more rigorously enforced and students were encouraged to engage in more respectable recreational activities such as sports and medical student societies. At the same time, the image of the riotous and boisterous medical student did not disappear completely. Drinking, pranks and involvement in student rags meant that negative perceptions of medical students as being rowdy and raucous men persisted well into the 20th century. Thank you.